You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. I'm down here in the in Texas. Actually, I'm on uh, my spring break for the whole month. As some of you guys well, may know, by the time this comes out, it won't come out till probably I'll probably be hot back up in Kansas City. But I found out about a story from uh, from actually from a fan whose dad was a chief of police in in Illinois, and 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 this fan who's all of a sudden I can't remember his name. Uh, he told me I need to get hold of a man named Mike Callahan, who was a former Illinois state trooper. Uh, he was a lieutenant, and he was in charge of an investigation that, that got a man off a of death row. And he also said the pizza connection case was all wrapped up in this. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in that pizza connection. I've done a lot of interviews about that and got a multi-episode series on that. So, so now that I'm down here in Texas, I just got hold of Mike, and, and I'm sitting down here in, in his house right now. Mike, welcome. Thank you. Now, Mike was a uh, was a lieutenant with the uh, Illinois State Police when he retired. Mike, tell the folks out there a little bit about your career as a state trooper. Well, I started with the Illinois State Police in 1980. Uh, I was uh, a road trooper in patrol for three and a half years, but it had always been my dream to become an investigator. And when uh, they finally opened up investigations, I applied and I became a special agent in the Division of Criminal Investigations for the State Police. Um, I worked a bulk of my career undercover in Chicago and uh, after I got married I, I started making some rank and and I became a sergeant and a master sergeant uh, in charge of mostly drug task forces um, or undercover units and then I went downstate after there uh, my wife and son were threatened and I felt it was a, a good time to move downstate and slow down a little bit and I ended up becoming a uh, while I was down there, I became promoted to lieutenant, and I was in charge uh, of investigations in a nine-county area in East Central Illinois. What what was your what city did you work out of, Mike? Our uh, headquarters was in Champaign, but we covered nine counties. Okay, so it was a huge geographical yeah. area of Illinois. I bet you got some stories out of Chicago working undercover up in Chicago as a young man. <laughs> I got quite a few. I <laughs> we'll have to do that next time, huh? Sure. <laughs> Uh, have you got one quick short one? Oh gosh! You know, I, I worked an undercover sting for. Uh, oh, I can't tell this one on the air because it's kind of <laughs> nasty. <laughs> I, I guess you want a funny story, a yeah. sad story. Uh, you know, we. Uh, uh, I did a little bit of everything. I bought drugs. I bought guns. I, I did murder for hires. It just. Uh, it, it was always. Uh, uh, very challenging, and but it, yet uh, it was something. I, I worked a two-year undercover sting in Waukegan, Illinois, and uh, I guess the story that com- comes to mind, my partner in that, we we had this like pawn shop, resale shop, and nobody knew. It was only the state police and the chief of police knew about the sting. I mean, the FBI had actually cameras on us, and and because the county did, and nobody knew, and therefore we couldn't carry our guns, we couldn't carry badges. And I had set up a cocaine deal with one of the, the, the gangbangers that we were dealing with in the resale shop. And my partner had always said, hey, he said, the only thing that leads us to be in police are the police radios under our undercover cars. I had a Camaro at the time. And he said, 
I learned a long time ago was get a bunch of ketchup and mustard and put it on t-shirts and sacks and stuff and cover that around your radio in case they somebody wants to search your car police or anybody right and so I get in the car with this guy that had set up a, for me to buy an ounce of cocaine and he has me drive down the street and I get he takes me down this alley and it's a dead-end alley and in comes behind uh, this firebird a red firebird of four gangbangers Uh-oh. and they got the ounce of coke but they said hey we don't know you we want to make sure you're not a cop and they start searching my car and one of the guys that's standing beside me he pulls a gun out and he's holding it down by his side you know looking at me and i'm like oh my god i'm terrified my heart's beating I can imagine. and i'm thinking should i just start running down this alley and hope they don't <laughs> shoot me <laughs> what's gonna go on my legs were like rubber though so i couldn't do anything and sure enough one of the guys opens the driver's side and he starts going under my seat well he pulls out this t-shirt that's full of ketchup and mustard and he's like oh my god dude you're a pig <laughs> he goes oh man he goes you need to clean this shit up like that but cool. then the deal ended i mean we ended up doing the i bought the ounce of cocaine from them and we went on our ways and everything was fine so but uh, that was a very scary moment oh but. yeah those running those stings you know all over the united states they did stings we had one in kansas city and the same thing is all of a sudden they couldn't tell anybody about it and there was some young street policeman named dusty Rhodes. i'll never forget he was real gung-ho and he found the location of this sting, and he had some informant talking about, these guys are in here buying stolen property from every drug addict in town and every thief in town. So he does his own, he comes back in off-duty on his own time with his own van and starts running a surveillance audit, and somebody notices him sitting down the street. They said, hey, that young dude, that Dusty Rhodes, he's sitting down the street like he's watching us. What's going on? So they, hey, somebody, you know, gets him in later on. And so they just, they let him then go work with the guys on the sting for oh. his good police work. Because <laughs> he was diligent. <laughs> that was one where they, remember the picture of Farrah Fawcett, the famous picture of Farrah Fawcett oh, in the bathing the suit? red bathing suit. Right. Oh, yeah. So they put a picture of her up over the... Um, the uh, counter that they had, they had the same kind of a deal, like they were kind of a resale shop. And so they put a picture of her up over the counter, and then they put a pinhole camera in behind that. So all these dudes would walk in, and they'd look up at that picture, and they'd get this great facial shot. That's excellent. <laughs> excellent. The book that Michael's written about this, Mike's written about that, is Too Politically Sensitive. So if you want to go to Amazon and look up too politically sensitive, or I'll have a link to it on the show notes uh, by Michael Callahan. Why uh, it's a really interesting book. I'm about three quarters of the way through it now, and and, and it's it's quite a read. <laughs> you won't believe some of the stuff that that he tells you that that he uncovered in this investigation. But to go back to the investigation, there was a nice young couple in Paris, Illinois, that were murdered. It was Dyke and Karen Rhodes, I believe was that that was her name. Yes, that's correct. It's in the town of Paris, a, a little town on the Indiana-Illinois border, a population of about 9,000 people, little farming community. So what, did somebody just find their bodies or something? And Well, what happened is it was uh, July 6th, the morning of July 6th, uh, there was a fire in their house. Firemen were called to the house. Um, a woman had heard screaming. Several people had actually reported they heard a woman screaming. And when the fire cut fire department got there, the house was ablaze, so they broke in through the door, went up, and they crawled up. They said because of the smoke was so heavy, they crawled up the stairs, and uh, they found the bodies of Dyke and Karen. But uh, Dyke and Karen weren't killed by the fire. They had actually been stabbed to death. 
um, over 54 wounds. Dyke was 28 years old, suffered 28 wounds, and mm -hmm. Karen was 25, and she had 25 wounds. Hmm. I wonder if that was just a fluke or what. That's interesting. Well, it was uh, one death blow to him, two death blows to her. Most of the wounds were only an inch to an inch and a half in depth. So uh -huh. um, one of my suspicions was it was this torture, um, and they were being tortured to, to see what they knew or uh, yeah. uh, before because uh, the death blows were well placed, professionally placed, you know, from the behind the under the right shoulder and to the rib cage up to the heart. I see. Interesting. So, and then, like I said, you weren't working that at the time, but they quickly, local police quickly came up with a couple of suspects. No, not so quickly. It was about a year later, I think, wasn't it, that they came up with a couple of suspects? Well, it was it was a good six months before when one of the first eyewitnesses came forward, but but I later learned that they actually discounted this. They had given him a polygraph. He, he lied on the polygraph. Um, not only did he lie on the polygraph, but the polygraph examiner that worked for the state police came to me and said I had told him he was purposely misleading police. And um, at the very least, they couldn't use him as a credible witness. Uh, what's interesting is a year later, um, the local detective, the FBI had reached out to our state police detective that was involved in this, along with a local police officer, and asked them, would you like us to profile some of the suspects you have in this case? And in fact, the two suspects that would eventually be railroaded into prison. And Jim Parrish actually wrote a letter back saying, uh, we have absolutely no information uh, to lead to the belief that Randy Steyer or Herb Whitlock committed these murders of this couple. In fact, we, we only have information from an eyewitness and he has absolutely no credibility whatsoever. What's interesting is he wrote that letter back to the FBI saying we don't, we have this witness but he has no credibility, but yet three months later he went before a grand jury and told that grand jury that Daryl Harrington was a very credible witness. So he was the local policeman that was Yeah, he was a local and, detective. And Jim Parrish, and, and he, he had this eyewitness who was not credible, and when the FBI offered to help, they said, no, we don't have anything, you know, th this is not credible at all. And then six months later, he testifies that, yeah, these are the two suspects. Yeah, three months later. Three months later. That's, that, that's amazing. Uh, now, was there, was there any reason, other reason why they might have been killed? I mean, were they into any kind of criminal things themselves? Sometimes you, you first thing with a murder, you know, you look at the suspect, I mean, the victims, and learn about their lives and see it. Murder is such a personal thing that it probably, what, 75 or 80 percent of the time is somebody that knows them or knows a lot about them or something. And, and so you look at them first. Did they have anything in their history that would lead you to believe they were maybe involved in some drug business or something? That Not, you know, Dyke and, and Karen were just young newlyweds. Um, they were the all-American couple. Um, she was 25 years old. She was, you know, raised in nearby Ridge Farm, um, you know, very religious, didn't believe in drugs or didn't really drink. Um, you know, Dyke was a softball player and, and uh, they later on the state's attorney had tried to say, well, he was, um, you know, he smoked his pot and that type of thing. But 
you know, he had no no narcotics in his system or anything like that. There was no, and, and everybody that was interviewed said that once Dyke married Karen, he didn't even associate with those guys that, that he did that. But if anything, it was, you know, he'd smoke your occasional joint. But Like, every, was, like every other 20 to 25-year-old right. or 18-year-old to 25-year-old. Other year than old. that, no criminal histories. They were just the all-American young mm. couple. You know, he played softball and, and you know, he worked and she worked and and um, there was actually no motive the police couldn't yeah. even come up with a motive for the the first six months of this this case so usually when you have no motive like that you go to the some kind of serial killer or some kind of uh, mental case that that just stumbled into them or or, or whatever and because there was there any like amount of money that was taken they might have had and it was robbery could robbery have been a motive no robbery wasn't a motive uh, they they had nothing um, burglary. There was there was rumors of a peeping tom that was in the neighborhood that summer. Um, Karen Rhodes' boss had come up with a theory that he said, you know, Karen was very beautiful, and she was probably out mowing the grass in her Daisy Duke shorts one day, and a couple of the uh, local bikers went by and went to a uh, bar and got drunk and came back and probably raped her, and that was that was the motive he gave that he thought why mm-hmm. this happened, but. Karen Rose wasn't sexually molested. There was, you know, she wasn't sexually assaulted. So that that ruled out that theory. So, so what was the theory that you, you say this eyewitness comes forward, and what what was the motive for the two men, the two suspects they had? What was what was their supposed motive? They were there was two eyewitnesses that led to the. There was no physical evidence in this case, obviously because of the fire. There, there would be physical evidence later. Um, that we could talk about, but Daryl Harrington came forward in September. You know, this is after the murders that happened in July. <clears throat> and Daryl Harrington's history was he was the town drunk. Um, he had lost his license for so many DUIs. He rode a bicycle through town. Um, he had uh, been in and out of some mental facilities himself. Um, had some criminal history for deceptive practice, uh, things like that. Um, and Parrish and, and uh, Chief Jane Ray would say that they were driving along one night and Daryl Harrington he was drunk and they stopped and he got in the back of their squad car and he said, just don't ask me about the murders. And it's kind of funny, Gene Ray said, well, us being police officers, we decided we better ask him about the murders. <clears throat> and uh, so they took him to Gene Ray's residence, which is unusual, not the police department, and they interviewed him. And he, gave, he said that two men named Jim and Ed were responsible for the murders of Dyke and Karen Rhodes. Well, the police never mentioned that. They never wrote a report on this meeting and where he mentioned Jim and Ed. And being the town drunk, um, Harrington was for the next two days interviewed and, and the police will admit after supplying him with a fifth of whiskey and several beers, um, he, in an interview, their first official written interview, changed the names from Jim and Ed, which is never mentioned, but to Randy Steidel and Herb Whitlock. And that's the first time we ever see that Randy Steidel and Herb Whitlock are mentioned as suspects in the murders. So, and the, the only thing you've got on them is this unconfirmed uh, eyewitness that was there and was there any reason why well, he was an eyewitness why he was there was he part Harry, of it Harrington gives this elaborate story that he starts drinking at noon on the 5th 
and he drinks for 12 straight hours. And at around, you know, later in the evening, 9, 10 o'clock, he meets up with Randy Steidel and they start drinking. And then Herb Whitlock comes in and he's drinking with him. And he asks for a ride home. And um, as they're going home, they turn down the street and they go to Dyke and Karen Roads. And they said, you stay in the car, Daryl. And uh, we got some business to take care of. And Daryl gives two different accounts and two different stories. And the first one is he says Dyke comes out and Herb Whitlock's there. And then Herb motions for Randy to come in. They all go inside. And the next thing you know, he hears a woman screaming. And um, he proceeds to, he's, instead of going in the front door that's open, he says he takes a credit card and opens the locked kitchen door, goes into the back and starts up the stairs. He's met at the uh, halfway down the stairs by a bloody Randy Steidel who tells him, get out of here. And Daryl's story is that he goes outside after this woman screaming that several neighbors have said they have heard. He, and he gives a timeline that it, this is occurring between 11.30 and 12.30, which I can get into later because there's several neighbors that have said they were out and their front porches right across the street from Dyke and Karen's from 11.30 to 12.30, and they never see or or hear the screams until the screams are reported at 4 a.m. by one neighbor. But um, they never see Daryl Harrington standing outside, and and what's also odd is he says that Randy Steidel, covered in blood, comes outside and starts threatening him, saying, you didn't see anything, Uh, you better keep your mouth shut or we'll kill you and your family just like we did them. And then... He, he also says Herb Whitlock then comes down covered in blood and says the same thing and threatens him. And his story is that Herb then gets into a vehicle, drives off, gets two jugs of gasoline, comes back, and that's how the fire has started. And so after that, they get another gift from God. Some woman comes along and, and yeah, the tells second some I, of the same story. Yeah, the second eyewitness comes forward in, in the winter of uh, you know 1986-87. We, we find out later that she's actually been, uh, and this is from the daughter of Jim Parrish, that uh, she's actually been meeting with Jim Parrish, you know, prior to that as early as September. Um, But again, similar to Daryl Harrington, she's been in and out of mental institutions. Um, She's a drug addict. She's an alcoholic, um, criminal arrest, uh, very violent person, um, and actually no credibility. Um, But she comes forward, and she actually starts out by just leading the police in four separate reports. But they, by the, the time they're done with her and, and probably coercing her, she actually says that she was at the scene of the murder. Um, in fact, she also says she's drinking with Steidel and Whitlock that whole night. She never sees Daryl Harrington there. So it, what's the, one of the biggest contradictions is they both say they're drinking all night long with Steidel and Whitlock, but yet neither one says the other one was there. <laughs> and, and that's the same with at the murder scene. Uh, she actually ends up saying that she's in the room with Steidel and Whitlock, and she um, says, I, I know something isn't going to, this isn't going to be good. And Karen tries to get out of bed, and she grabs Karen and pushes her back down on the bed. And then the, the two men take turns stabbing both of them, you know, trading the knife back and forth. Um, she's never charged with murder. Um, 
she actually, actually, she makes this confession to the, the police. She walks out of the police department. They just, they didn't arrest her or anything. And so here's this woman that is mentally, you know, unstable. She's an alcoholic. She's a drug addict. She's got a prior criminal history. She says she just participated in the murder of these two couples and they don't arrest her, uh, which was, you know, there was just so many things about this case that stood out. So many red flags. It was just really? ridiculous. But to make a long story short, they convict both of them. Yeah, uh, ultimately they are convicted. Um, Herb Whitlock first, um, and he was given a life sentence because the jury had said, well, uh, we really didn't think that uh, he killed either one of them, but we don't want to be sequestered for this weekend, Labor Day week, so we'll find him guilty of killing one and not the other. Um, he was ultimately given a life sentence for that. And then Steidel went to, on trial and uh, he was actually found guilty of killing both of them, and he was given a death penalty. Wow. So you're not involved at that time. You're going to come along later. You've learned all this from your later investigation, but what else was going on in, in Harris, Illinois, that, you know, that may have some bearing on this case? There's a whole other uh, narcotics thing going on in, in Paris that, I mean, these people obviously were executed. And, and did they see something or, I mean, what, 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 what else could have been going on? Well, th this is all in the same time frame. Of, you know, you go back, you talked about the Pizza Connection. Right. Um, the Pizza Connection was a 10-year investigation. Um, Rudy Giolani was the U.S. attorney in the Southern District. Um, Louis Free was actually the uh, his assistant that prosecuted. He was a prosecutor, the wasn't he? He was the prosecutor. Before he became the head of the FBI. Yes, and he became head of the FBI. And uh, in fact, I have a, an email <laughs> by him. <laughs> but uh, um, so it was a ten-year investigation, and and involved. It was deemed the largest drug conspiracy case in the history of the United States at the time, and it involved the Sicilian mafia and these pizza connection or pizza outfits throughout the United States, a lot, most of them in Illinois, Wisconsin, some in Philadelphia, and then the five families in New York. And it was a heroin distribution, which later turned into cocaine uh, trafficking also. But it was the heroin that, that started. And um, one of the pizza places that was under surveillance, in fact, uh, the individual that was arrested, he was um, a nephew of Gaetano Balamente. So if you go into the history of the pizza connection, you have the five families in New York, you have all the families throughout the United States, and the Sicilians were bringing in the heroin and transporting it throughout the United States. And they did a lot of this through these Ma and Pa pizza places. And uh, I believe they were all owned by people who were actually from Sicily. Sicily. And this Balamente was actually yes, from Gaetano Balamente at one point was the head of the Sicilian mafia. Right. And he fell out of, uh, um, he, I think, actually, if you look at the history, he fled to South America or something. Right. But this was well after the heroin turned into cocaine trade. But Balamente, uh, most of it, uh, most a lot of the people in, in Illinois were his nephews by marriage or his, his right. nieces the one at by marriage. Rockford, Illinois, I think, was his nephew, I believe. Yes, his nephew, and then uh, uh, the one in Paris was a nephew by marriage. Okay, and then there was uh, another one. Yeah, I mean, they were through, all throughout Illinois, and the Illinois State Police was involved with the FBI in surveillance on these Ma and Pa pizza places. So we we have a lot of documentation and reports. Uh, the, the surveillances we did and stuff. 
So, um, so could they have seen something, or could that have anything to do with them? Well, I, I mean, those Sicilians don't play. I no. know that. <laughs> well, in, in 1984, Joe Vitale was arrested in the Pizza Connection case. And, and, and he, owned, he owned the local pizza place, pizza, and that was uh, Balamonte's nephew-in-law. Right, Okay. in, in 1984. And uh, he was arrested in 1984, and in 1986, Karen Rhodes and Dyke Rhodes were killed. And she had talked about her workplace and suspicions and things she'd seen at her workplace. She had told family members. She told a, an ex-boyfriend. She told several people that she'd seen machine guns and large amounts of cash going through the business. Um, we later had uh, an informant actually disclose that Karen had walked up on a car being loaded for Joe Vitale. Um, which to us stood out as, could this be the motive, for the reason why she was killed? And then when you look into the history of the pizza kitchen a little bit deeper, you see that in 1987, Pietro Alfano from Rockford area and an, another individual from Illinois that was in the Balamenti family, they were gunned down in New York by orders of the New York mob because they had ordered the, the Illinois families to cease and desist on narcotics trafficking while the pizza connection trials were going on because they went on from 1984 to, to 1987. And um, supposedly the FBI had information that the reason these two men were gunned down and Alfano was paralyzed from the waist down, the other man was murdered, um, was because they had refused to obey the orders of the New York mob. So, you know, one theory could be that she had seen this, she had seen something, and they were under orders to not continue to deal narcotics. And there you've got a, 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 a non-involved witness that could blow the and she's top a definite, of the whole she's thing. And she's a definite liability for them. Right. Interesting, interesting. Now, uh, folks, I hate to disappoint you, but we're never going to really connect this up uh, for sure, this theory. It's a pretty good theory. It's, it's a strange case, but... Uh, Mike, you were at your really first involvement was you were assigned to look at this murder conviction for some reason. That was was that because forty eight hours was the, the state police heard forty eight hours was looking at it and there was an innocence project that was looking into it. Yeah, the the two men were convicted in, in nineteen eighty seven, um, and f fourteen years later, after the murders of Dyke and Karen, I actually got visits from the family members of Dyke and Karen Rhodes, and they said we don't feel justice was done. We're not sure those two did it. We want you to search for the truth. And at the same time, um, I think the reason the family had come to me, uh, the Innocence Project from uh, Dave Protus, Northwestern, and uh, Bill Clutter, a private eye that was hired by Stido and uh, by Stido actually, because um, he was had received the death penalty. Mm -hmm. um, and they had done a lot of investigation, and therefore 48 hours got interested in the case. And at that time, uh, George Ryan was our governor who would end up going to prison. <laughs> and uh, our department became very, the, the upper command be, became very politicized, I guess. And um, because of that, they're concerned about 48 hours in the media, you know, putting some Mike Wallace, giving the hot seat to the command or something, or making the Illinois State Peace look bad in this investigation. I was the commander of the Illinois State Police for that area. I was told that uh, to review the case. 
So I was given the assignment 14 years after the murders to actually review the case file and review the case. And, and you know, I was told by some that they just rubber stamped the case that we got the right people. Um, and of course, you know, I was very proud of the Illinois State Police and I had done a lot of good work and, and I knew uh, so many guys that had done just, you know, very honest and, and for me to think that there would be any wrongdoing, I said, you know, of course we got the right people, the Illinois State Police never make mistakes, but I was very wrong in my assessment. and. Uh, uh, so I, I started the review. What, what was the biggest red flag when you first got that case file? I, I know I know the reports were horribly written, written like uh, well, somebody with yeah. a third grade education, but, but there were some other things that just like, wait a minute. I, I was a brand new lieutenant, and, and obviously I got this assignment, and, you know, I had been the, the other lieutenant. He said, you know, just rubber stamp this. And, of course, you know, my mindset is the Illinois State Police doesn't make mistakes, but I'll never forget the day I walked in. Uh, to the office, I see this huge case file sitting on my desk, and that's the file I'm supposed to review. And I was given a very short turnaround to review the case and, and basically rubber stamp it. Um, but I, I got a call from the former uh, zone commander, the commander that, that did what I did, that was over in charge of the investigation. And he, he says, Lieutenant Callahan, I understand you're going to review the Rhodes case. And he's retired, and I don't have any idea how he knows I'm reviewing the case. Cause it, but uh, I guess, well, okay, I'm downstate Illinois now, so news travels fast. And, uh, but it was, it was the tone of his voice and his words that just, it was probably the very first red flag. Because um, you have to understand, these guys had solved a horrible murder. Um, they had gotten accolades for solving the murder. They were heroes. They were, and his first words to me were, don't make us old timers look bad after I acknowledged that we were gonna review the case. Red flag. And I said, you know, that's not my intentions to make anybody look bad. Um, I'm just going to review the case. And he said, just don't make us old timers look bad. And it was the concern and worry in his voice. And it was just, I'm like, if you solved this murder, why would you be worried that anybody would make you look bad? Um, so that was definitely the first red flag. So I sit down and I start reading the case file and I'm looking at the reports and, and I'm actually ashamed at the, the written reports. They just, they just weren't the reports I was used to seeing in the Illinois State Police. Um, very short, two sentence reports, paragraph, I mean, just it was just misspelled. I mean, it was just, I'm like, whoever approved these reports um, had limited education, I guess. I, I feel your pain, brother. I've seen a few of those, but go ahead. And, uh, and I mean, I'm no sooner in, into the beginning of the, the case file, I get a second phone call. And it's Jack Eckerty, the case agent for the state police, Sergeant Jack Eckerty. And he says, Lieutenant Callahan, he goes, I understand you're reviewing the Rhodes case. And I'm like, boy, uh, you know, news sure travels fast downstate. And I said, yes, I am. And, and he said, please, I'm, I'm a good cop. Please don't ruin my reputation. I'm not a dirty cop. And he was so nervous on the end of the end of the phone. And again, he just repeats it. Please don't ruin my reputation. I'm not a dirty cop. Man. And I'm like, this just isn't what you expect to hear from a fellow state police officer that solved a murder. And, and he's so worried I'm looking at the case. And I actually got a call from another, a sergeant that was still in the state police, hadn't retired yet. And he said, please don't ruin Jack Eckerty's reputation. So by this point, I'm like, 
I think I need to give my full and undivided attention to this case and really dig into it because something's not right here. And, and of course, as I started digging into the case, I, I think I was on 48 hours and I actually held the case file up and I'd taken yellow post-its and put notes by exculpatory evidence that had never been disclosed or reports that had been distorted or lied or information that had been withheld that should have been information that would have either shown the two eyewitnesses were totally not credible or information that showed that they they withheld evidence on other suspects and I just I was beside myself by the time I got done with the case file I was convinced that there was misconduct by the prosecutor and, and one of our own officers and, and the local officer I was um, it was probably the worst case file I'd ever seen in the history in my history and I've had two other individuals that have read it after me agree wholeheartedly so so in your position then you're going you're reporting this up your chain of command and you're assuming you know your chain of command is gonna like you know, back you up on this and, and uh, going to take a look at it and do the right thing. I, I, I wrote a very detailed review uh, of the case. Um, I said there's exculpatory evidence, there's other suspects, uh, there's leads that weren't followed, there's other suspects in this case that weren't, were ignored, purposely ignored by the police. There's distortions in reports, there's lies in reports. Um, these two eyewitnesses were not credible. And, and in fact, I recommended that we open an investigation on the prosecutor and the two investigators in addition. Uh, I said that I felt there was definite misconduct. Um, I, I forwarded that up to the, to the chain of command, to my colonel, or lieutenant colonel at the time. And uh, I was told to get in contact with the Illinois Attorney General, and, which I did. And I had, uh, uh, Bob Spence was a good friend of mine that was a prosecutor in DuPage County. I used to take him drug cases. And uh, he ended up asking me to send my memo. And I, at the time, the Illinois Attorney General was reviewing a petition for Randy Steidel to retry the case or not. And um, I had named some, uh, like I said, Governor Ryan at the time and, and, and Jim Ryan, who was the Attorney General, were both getting big campaign contributions from one of the suspects I named in my memo. So the next day, the Attorney General recused the case. And because I had sent that to the Illinois Attorney General, but I did it at the orders of my lieutenant colonel. Um, I got a call from you know the the deputy director of in, investigations and in, in all of operations, and I got my butt chewed out because I had shared this with an outside agency, and and I had said I was just following my orders from Lieutenant Colonel Carper and Captain Furman, and so he got very quiet and said, "I'll call you back." Of course, he never called me back, but but. Uh, that probably saved me right at that point because <laughs> I, I think I would I was on probation as a lieutenant, and I think oh, they yeah. would have probably oh. taken my lieutenant's position away from me. Really? Um, Good thing you recovered by those other two guys. That... I, I actually had the emails where they had ordered me because <laughs> I had said, I don't, you know, the Illinois Attorney General is not going to be interested in in my findings in this case. They're right. only interested in in what they do, the prosecution part. So interesting. Um, so that and the title of your book, too politically sensitive. I, I think maybe that came out of the lips of somebody. Yeah, this I time. mean, it, it's since when is murder too politically sensitive? And uh, as as time went on, my captain and I were called into Springfield, 
and when it was learned about the political contributions and, and the connections to Governor Ryan, um, that's when the case became too politically sensitive. I don't know if the orders came from Governor Ryan or from the top of the Illinois State Police Command, but we were brought into the Lieutenant Colonel's office and she looked at both Captain Stroll and I and she said, you are to cease and desist uh, on looking at, at the Rhodes investigation any longer. It's too politically sensitive. Mm. Wow. And I was just floored. I was floored. I. I I still remember my feelings that day. I just, I think my soul left my body because you're, you're looking at a career police officer that thought, you know, hey, the Illinois State Police, nobody's above the law and we're, nobody's beyond reproach and we will always do the right thing no matter what. And uh, then you're told uh, to cease and desist on the, the fact that the, the real murders are still out yeah, there. I can't even imagine what and you must have felt like. this right. young couple, and yeah. I, you know, I, at this point, I'd had the family members come to me and say, please look for justice for us, and I promised them I would. Yeah. And now I'm told to cease and desist because it's too politically sensitive. So You didn't cease and desist, did you? No, I didn't cease and desist. I, I just couldn't. You know, I, uh, I had gotten a lot of information from Bill Clutter and... Uh, he was a private eye working was for one of the defendants. Was on was on the death row. Yeah. And uh, so I have all these outside entities that are continuing to feed me information and thinking that we're still doing the right thing. Um, the one caveat that probably allowed me, I had, I had told the lieutenant colonel, I said, well, the FBI and, and at the time ATF had a case going on. And I said, I've already promised assistance to the FBI and the ATF and, and, and their investigations. And I said, if I just pull out now and don't do anything, and ATF or FBI come across something um, on the Rhodes case, I said, it's going to look pretty bad, and we're going to look corrupt. And she looked at me for a while, and she said... <laughs> you had her. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I kind of put her between a rock and a hard yeah. place. And she looked at me, she goes, okay. She goes, you can go along with the ATF and the FBI, but she goes, you can't be operational in any way. She goes, I just want you to listen and learn what they're doing. And if anything comes back on the Rhodes case, I want to be the first person you call about it. So in other words, she wanted me to be right. a snitch or yeah. an informant. And, and, you know, if the FBI or ATF learn anything, then, then we'll deal with it then. If not, but she said, but you're not to look at the Rhodes case. You're not to be operational. But just go along with them and, and listen and learn and, and then let us know if they, they come close to anything. Um, but it did allow me to actually keep my foot in the door and still go and learn more and more and investigate more and more. And, and, uh, and we were probably operational at some points, but you know, uh, it, it was, uh, it was very disheartening to, to keep learning information where I, I and, and I had a Sergeant that was, that was with me and uh, along on this and we were like, we could solve this case. We could really solve this case, but it's just, you know, it would have been the end of our careers too. Yeah. Wow. So in a way, it, it was a career ender in a way. Uh, we'll, we'll tell this last final story about uh, how you ended up having to sue your boss. Well, um, I, I had a new captain come on board. We reorganized and, and she stood by me and she said, oh my, you know, she also said, we have to do something. You could solve this case. We can't just sit back and do nothing. Um, she ended up getting removed when it was learned that we were actually, you know, when we kept persisting yeah. with the command that you can't sit back and there's innocent men in prison here. And um, so she was first removed and then 
I was eventually removed and put back in patrol. So at the time, you know, when I was my lieutenant colonel, she said, we're removing you to patrol. And I said, what did I do? And she goes, you know what you did. Well, what I did is I had gone to our division of internal investigation and turned her in and a captain in for stopping us from investigating the Rhodes murders. So I had gone to our division of internal investigation thinking that they were going to open an investigation on them. They, they never did. In <laughs> they fact, just told her. <laughs> in fact, what they did is they went back to her and told yeah. her what I had done, and therefore I was removed by her and put back in patrol. And in fact, she had made it a clear point. She said, you have no recourses against us because you're not being fired, you're not losing pay, you're not losing rank, and you're only going to drive 15 more minutes to your headquarters as patrol <laughs> than you did investigations. So they had this well thought out. There's that, some truth to that. <laughs> and, and, and I really couldn't. I had yeah. no avenue. There was no whistleblower laws or anything that protected me. So I went into a very deep depression about this. In fact, my wife could tell you um, I just felt helpless. Like, I, I, I've been wronged, but the bigger wrong was done to Dyke and Karen Rhodes and to Randy and, and Herb who were sitting in prison. And then I, I actually met with Bill Clutter and, and I kind of told him about this and he said, you know, you, you have a First Amendment right. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, if you speak out, speak out on a matter of public concern and you're punished for it, mm -hmm. you're protected by the First Amendment. So I met with John Baker, um, who he had recommended a Springfield attorney, and he, he was, well, you know, he was a First Amendment attorney, and, and I told him the story, and, and we therefore filed a lawsuit against uh, my three commanders that had, had punished me for, you know, speaking out about the truth. Uh, we went through a trial. I, I won the trial. The, the jury uh, um, found Furman and Carper guilty. Uh, violating my First Amendment rights, and the judge concurred. Mike Callahan spoke out on a matter of public concern. He goes, obviously, two innocent men in prison, and and uh, the real suspect, the real murderers out there, is a matter of public. And the state police refusing to um, not only punish the commanders that stopped this investigation, but um, the commanders that that stopped it. He goes, that's a matter of public concern for all of us. And uh, I had won the lawsuit, but at the same time. Um, George W. Bush, when he appointed uh, John Roberts and, and uh, Alito, it turned the court and they changed the law. It was Garcetti versus Sabalios was a case. And basically they said government employees no longer had First Amendment rights right. to that speak out while they, were on, while they were on duty. Yeah. Um, and therefore my case was overturned based on that. And in fact, uh, the ruling was Mike Callahan was not speaking as a United States citizen, but as a government employee, and yeah. therefore he is not entitled to First Amendment protections, which uh, was just another egregious thing in this because it's basically telling police officers or teachers or anybody, uh, you can be silenced. Green, uh, yeah. Government has a green light to, to commit crimes, and they can silence those that would speak out about well, it. Interesting, especially in this day and age, everything's well, going I on mean, today. Uh, yeah, it's uh, one of the things I say in my book is I said the next thing after attacking those that, will, that are be honest enough to come forward and tell the truth, what they'll do is they'll will now attack the media and take, right. try to take a First Amendment rights from the media. Yeah. And what do you hear today? I Fake know. news. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the this, impeachment. This you know, Colonel and Colonel his brother, Vindman they just booted his, them back out. I mean, yeah. not, not that it's any big deal. You, know, you get paid the same and it didn't really hurt them. It's just, you know, just that kind of 
repercussions against somebody is just simply well, there's following all kinds orders. Of people being punished. So thing. you're basically telling government employees to be silent yeah. and let government be corrupt. Yeah, really. And uh, um, that means that uh, the police officer that might plant, plant drugs in your car, the good police officer would turn him in, um, doesn't have a right to speak out about right. it. And if, if he's, he's politically to connected, then, if, yeah. yeah. Well, we like to think not too much of that happens, but, you know, it's interesting points. And, folks, we don't usually get political like this on here, but I, I think this uh, this is one of the rare occasions that it calls for that because it's a, it's a perfect example of that. And, and a lot of policemen, you know, I, I have a lot of coppers on here, and I spent 25 years myself, and, and there's a lot of people out there simply always trying to do the right thing as best they possibly know how. And, and you know, we get all this negative publicity as it is, and and uh, so we like to let people know that we, most of us, really try to do the right thing. and But everybody doesn't because they're made up of human beings. You know, police departments are just like uh, any corporation, any any government agency, any uh, family. you got you got good folks and you got bad folks. And you got people that are scared. you got people that are, are corrupt. you got people that, that are ambitious, that will throw any caution to the wind to further their ambition. you got it all across the board. So thank God we got... People like uh, former, right now retired Lieutenant Callahan here sitting across the table from me, and, and I, I salute you for for your work on that. And if you want to know more about this case, and there's quite a little bit more in the book. Now those guys did get off death. Uh, what's his name? Got off death row. And well, both Randy Steidel, right? they were both released from prison. Okay. Uh, Randy Steidel and then Herb Boylock were both released. So did they get a big settlement from the state? Does the state of Illinois have a deal for that? And they, can, they like filed, in Kansas, they don't have that. They, they just, filed a lawsuit and they got the biggest payout. I think in the okay. history of Illinois, wow. um, they uh, they both sued and, and it never went to trial. The, the state yeah, settled. It was, that, it was that egregious. I know from some of the details you told me about things that were left out of that folder, it was pretty egregious, folks. You need to you need to get this book. Too politically sensitive. Uh, Michael Callahan. I appreciate it, Mike. And, Thank you uh, for having me. I appreciate it. I, uh, I'm I'm really I'm. Proud to meet you, too, and make your acquaintance. Pleasure to meet you. And, folks, we'll finish this off with my usual uh, public service announcement. If you have a friend or relative has a problem with drugs or alcohol, make your first call to first call. Call 816-361-5900 or go to their website, www.firstcallkc.org. And if you want to see either one of my movies, they're for rent at Amazon for only $1.99. That's Brothers Against Brothers, my most recent documentary. And then there's Gangland Wire, the original one. I have my book, uh, Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Uh, you, can get, you want to get that in the Kindle version because, you know, uh, I've said this many times before, uh, I hooked up all the original wiretaps that I use uh, the, the transcripts to in the book on a uh, uh, online place. So in, 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 uh, you click on the link in the Kindle version, you can actually hear the, the words out of the mouths of the guys that actually talked about skimming from Las Vegas casinos. All right. Good night, folks. Good night, Michael. Good night. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.